You've probably heard me talk about my dog, Jackson. He's my baby boy. And as he's gotten older, he's gotten really finicky about eating. He used to get so excited about food, he'd literally spin. Well, not anymore. In fact, I often have to spoon feed him to get him to eat. Well, no more. Not since we started feeding him fresh food made with whole ingredients, backed by veterinary science. It's Nom Nom. Now, I actually tried making food for him myself. I'd cook up big batches of chicken or beef with vegetables and rice or potatoes. But without knowing what I was doing, he wasn't getting the vitamins and minerals he needed and certainly not in the correct balance. That's all changed now with Nom Nom. Go to trynom.com, T-R-Y-N-O-M.com slash Nicole. They'll ask you some questions about your pup and tailor a specific amount of individually packaged Nom Nom meals and send them to you. By using my special URL, trynom.com slash Nicole, you'll get 50% off of your first order, plus free shipping, and it's a great way to help support this show too. Again, that's trynom.com slash Nicole. plus Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. The following program contains graphic material, including offensive language. Viewer discretion is advised. She's got the news. She talks with newsmakers. She encourages us to laugh, and she cries with us. Speaking truth to power and questioning authority daily, it's the Nicole Sandler Show. All right. Hello, and welcome, welcome, welcome to a Monday. It's a Monday. It's a holiday. So some of our colleagues have taken the day off. Not me. I'm here. Well, I'm, I'm half here. So let me explain to you what happened. I, I had a nice long talk with my buddy Brad Friedman over the weekend. We commiserate at times. And we were talking about today. You know, he's taking today off because it is a holiday. I explained that, you know, I was probably going to work because it is a holiday, but I'm not doing anything. And then I explained to him my my Martin Luther King Jr. holiday story, which frankly has nothing to do with Dr. King. But it, it's a story. And uh, in 1994, so we're coming up next year, it'll be 30 years, 29 years ago, not today, but tomorrow, because 29 years ago, the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, always on a Monday, fell on January 17th. And at that time, I was working at uh, in Los Angeles at KLOS radio station. I produced the Mark and Brian show. And those days, uh, my alarm went off at about 4 a.m. You know, I, I'd hit snooze a couple of times. At 4.30 each morning, I was in the shower, like clockwork, where I would have been that morning had I not just... Spur of the moment, nothing planned, just, uh, it was a Friday afternoon, Monday was the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, but it was not yet a holiday for us. We worked, it was, a, we were owned, KLOS was owned by ABC, Disney at the time, but that, uh, the, the day was not a company holiday yet. And I had worked all through the holidays, through Christmas and New Year's, um, because Mark and Brian would go on vacation and I would have to put together best of shows and host them. So, and that vacation fill-in came after this massive Christmas show that I put together every year and um, the day before Thanksgiving Day Parade. So from, you know, mid 
from November on, that was my busiest, craziest time of the year. And I didn't get a day off through that whole time. And so that Friday, before the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday on Monday, I just walked into my boss's office and just out of my mouth came, you know what, Carrie, I'm taking Monday off. I really need a day off. It's a holiday. I'm going to take a day off Monday. That was so out of character for me then. It still is now. But he said, do it. Have a day. Go. Go do it. And um, so that Monday morning comes, and the alarm did not go off at 4 a.m., but at about 4.30 a.m., I was jolted awake by an earthquake. Oh, yeah. It was, I believe, a 6.7. It was the Northridge quake. At the time, I was living in Santa Monica. In fact, if you uh, saw the video that I posted a few months ago of that I shot for my father as sort of a birthday present for him, like a day in the life of Nicole, I showed my apartment where I lived right by the beach. Um, well, the, the earthquake hit, and it hit with a jolt. And I'm like up, out of bed, and you know, you're told to get in under a door jam. And I, I get there, and the shaking stops. And I'm freaking out. <laughs> and, uh, of course, my power is out. And I, I don't even know how I lit my way out. Because this was before we all had cell phones with little flashlights on them. Somehow, I made it out. I, I got dressed, threw on clothes, got out of the apartment. Because, of course, my first thing, I worked in the media. And even though I was supposed to take the day off, I thought, I need to go into work. Because that's what you do. It, it's just, that's what you do. And, um, but I couldn't get my car out because my car was in the garage. It, it was just a two-car garage. It was myself. I shared it with another tenant of the building. We had the garage, but it only opened with the electric car door opener. And so I couldn't get my car out. And I'm standing there thinking, well, they'll send somebody for me because, of course, I'm thinking it's only here. Like we got hit with the worst of it, not knowing what was happening all around Los Angeles. And then, you know, I'm just standing there feeling helpless. And a neighbor from across the street came up to me and he said, he introduced himself. He knew who I was. He said, do you need a ride into, uh, to, to KLOS? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. I can't get to my car. And so he drove me. And we took side streets, which is a good thing because the 10 freeway, the Santa Monica freeway, which we would have taken, um, collapsed right at La Cienega Boulevard, which was my exit to get off to, to go to, uh, to go to the radio station. I didn't know any of this till later. So I get in, we work, you go into coverage mode and it was obviously a big earthquake. It wasn't just uh, my apartment in Santa Monica. And so later that afternoon, somebody drove me home. I don't remember who, but somebody drove me home. And I get back upstairs and I start looking around and surveying the damage because now I, I still don't think we had power, but now it's daylight outside. My kitchen's a mess. The cabinets all opened. The plates were on the floor. Things fell over. And then I walked into the bathroom. Now, one thing I didn't shoot when I made that video of my apartment for my father was the shower. The shower was, it was a bathtub, you know, with a, with a 
with a shower and an enclosed sliding glass door, but that's not the part that shattered. In the bathtub was like a cutout in the wall and a bench in the shower. It's kind of cool. Um, and the previous tenants, I'm guessing, had put a uh, uh, had put a um, uh, a full length mirror leaning against the back wall, sitting on that cutout bench in the shower. I never thought twice about it. But when I came home that day, that mirror, that full-length mirror, was in pieces, shattered, filling the whole bottom of the bathtub. Obviously, the earthquake hit, the, the apartment building goes, and the, the glass broke into a million pieces. I would have been in that shower at the moment the earthquake hit, because I was every day at that time. If I had been in that shower when the earthquake hit, I probably wouldn't be here today. I would have been killed. I would, at the very least, I would have been cut horribly by a million shards of glass. And maybe if I didn't die instantly, I would have bled out before anybody found me. I literally, truly, with every bone in my fiber, believe that had I not just for, it, it was not pre it, it wasn't planned. I didn't know when I walked into my boss's office that I was going to say, I'm taking Monday off. But I did. You know, I'm not a, uh, I, I don't believe in a God, but I do believe that, um, you know, I don't know. My mother died when I was 19, like a week before my 20th birthday. And I have to believe that she's looking out for me. And she's like, you're not going to work Monday. I, I don't know what it was that stopped me. I, I will give the credit to my late, lovely mother because I have no other reasonable explanation for it. But yeah, so that is my Martin Luther King Jr. Day story. That was that day, 29 years ago. Well, tomorrow, but today, because it was the holiday. So I'm talking to Brad and he's like, you're not taking Monday off? And I'm like, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. And then I told him the story. He said, that's every reason why you should take that. He said, look, until we treat it like a real holiday, nobody's going to treat it like a real holiday. So you need to take the day off. And I was like, uh, you know, I kind of get to honor the holiday because it, it saved my life, I guess. So anyway, today I'm half here. So th th this is what I thought. The other thing that I talked to him about is... You know, uh, he occasionally has to take time off. He's, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but he's talking about going to four days a week and what to do on the fifth day. And I said, what I'd like to do, and, and he's like me, Brad's been doing his show for a long, long time, although he hasn't been doing it five days a week for as long as I have. Um, I said, what I like to do when I know I'm going to be out is go back into the archives and look and see what happened on this date five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever. And chance, oftentimes it's really interesting. And so after I had the conversation with Brad, that's what I did. So I, um, I, <laughs> I, 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 I looked back through my archives and I pulled up, sure enough, January 16th, 2013. 10 years ago today.
and the the show it just it it my stomach dropped after I listened a little while because you know back then I was doing two hours a day you know I it was ten years ago <laughs> had more energy then and my guest was Warren Mosler now Warren Mosler is was an early proponent of modern monetary theory. You know, I've had Stephanie Kelton on the show many times in the last couple of years talking about MMT. She's one of the leading economists who who is a proponent of it. Warren Mosler was an earlier, um, uh, you know, fan of modern monetary theory. And I'd had him on the show once before. But 10 years ago today... We were looking at, I I can't believe I'm even saying this, the Republicans, the irresponsible Republicans tanking the global economy by threatening not to raise the debt ceiling. That's when we were talking about minting a platinum coin worth a trillion dollars. Do you remember that? Well, that came from Warren Mosler. So today... A little later in the hour, we're going to listen back to that interview because it was 10 years ago and they were doing the same shit then. And why do we not learn from our mistakes? I just don't get it. I just don't get it. But here we are. So anyway, it's so it's a hybrid show today. I'm here for right now. I'm going to share some stuff with you. And then we're going to go to the uh, the audio tape and go back 10 years and hear Warren Mosler and what he was saying, not only about modern monetary theory, but about the debt ceiling and how the Republicans are willing to risk not only the good faith and credit of the United States of America, but the entire global economy. So stand by for that. But before we get there, I figured, you know, also 10 years ago, it was um, August, almost 10 years ago, August of 2013, that was the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, right? My, how time flies. Uh, The Martin Luther King Jr. March on Washington. So it wasn't on Martin Luther King Jr. Day 10 years ago, but 10 years ago when we were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the march and there was another march on Washington and I got to speak with Martin Luther King III, the one and only time I've ever spoken to him. And so um, a couple of questions. I don't have the entire interview. I have three answers of his that I pulled. Um, He was on with me. I think I was guest hosting for Randy Rhodes when her show was syndicated by Premier Radio. Uh, Again, I don't have the full show, the full interview, but I do have these three answers to three questions that I asked him. So first up, I asked him if he had any memories of that day 50 years earlier. And um, this was his answer. I do not remember that particular day uh, at, at five years old. What I remember is that my mom and dad, when they came home, they were very, very excited. And there was a lot of 
uh, jubilation because it, 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 and they were really exhilarated because uh, the, the the demonstration was so positive, uh, and it was really, if you think about it, in 1963 America was very segregated. So the fact that blacks and whites and younger people and older folks came and children came together, America came together in 1963. It was such an uplifting period uh, at that particular time. Uh, It wasn't an easy time, but I guess it was uplifting. So, you know, one of the sort of pet peeves about people um, who are, you know, of our like mind is listening to Republicans. I mean, Mehdi Hassan did a great rant on it last night and actually heard Joy Reid, whose show I don't uh, watch very often because just not a fan of hers. But I heard her go off on this as well. It seems like... Republicans, for the most part, um, they get off. They like, oh, I can quote Martin Luther King and the quote they always say. Come on, you know it. Say it with me. I want my kids judged not on the color of their skin, but the content of their character. The only quote they know from Martin Luther King Jr. And they they spew it as if, you know, uh, Dr. King was saying, oh, race doesn't matter. That's not what he was saying at all. The issue of being judged by the color of your skin is still very prevalent as mm-hmm. opposed to being judged by the content of one's character. I think that we are, we're moving there, but it, it's clear to me we still have work to do. That does not mean that our society is not uh, a wonderful society. But I think this March, this 50th anniversary, I'll, I'll say the one in 63 was about jobs and freedom. Mm-hmm. In 2013, the march is around jobs, uh, justice, and freedom. And so it, there's an additional issue added, but the fact of the matter is there are many in our nation who are still not working, and specifically youngsters between the age, ages of 18 and 35, there are significantly large numbers of youngsters who are not able to find jobs in our, in our country. And so uh, that's why we're focusing on those issues. So that's what the march was 10 years ago today. Or, or 10 years ago, sorry, in August. Um, and then the last question that I asked of Dr. of, of Martin Luther King III uh, when I spoke to him 10 years ago uh, in August um, was I, I asked him, what's something personal about your dad? I mean, we've, we've all heard the stories of his public life, but personal. What, something personal about him that we don't know that he wanted to share? Number one, Dad was a great athlete. He used to come home and toss the football and toss the baseball, and every now and then we would shoot basketball hoops. But he was not tall in stature. He was only about 5'7", but he could jump very high. Number two, he was an avid swimmer, so we used to go to the YMCA to swim with him uh, from uh, at least once a week, he would get exercise uh, at the YMCA. And number three, he was very humorous. America saw the the serious yeah. side of Dad, but um, and and as all dads, I mean, he was just a, a tremendously loving uh, father. And you know, I take experiences from that. I actually, uh, my wife and I have a five year old daughter that has joined us. We've She's met up her here in Washington, and so she'll be experiencing. Wow. She's now fifteen. And, and already has an understanding to some degree of her own family legacy. Yeah, their daughter, we saw that day, uh, she got up and spoke, and we've seen her a few times since. I'm, for, I'm blanking on her name, but she's 15 now, and she 
looks like she got her grandfather's oratory skills. So I look forward to hearing more from her. The Washington Post today has a story. Nine things you did not know about Martin Luther King Jr. And I'm read it. And a lot of it was interesting, but this one I found really, really fascinating. And I'm going to let you hear the clip that they embedded in the story. And it's Gail King interviewing Julia Roberts. Listen to this. Or, or, or not. Come on. Are we there? Something funky is going on with this uh, playback machine here today. Hold on, I do have it here so I can, okay, let's, let's try that again. It's Gail King uh, interviewing Julia Roberts. I just want to take a step back for you, Julia, because you have two historical figures that I'll bet most people don't know this about you. Your brush with, let's start with the day you were born. Who paid for the hospital bill? Okay. Her research is very good. <laughs> we're professionals. This is a... Um, uh, the King family paid for my The King family. Bill. Not my family. Not your family, but... Um, Martin Luther King Jr. And Coretta. And how did that come about? Well... I mean, did you guys know that about Julia Roberts? That, who knew? Who knew that? Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King Jr. Why did they do that? Because um, well, your dad, Walter Roberts. Yes, and obviously because my parents couldn't pay for the hospital bill. Um, they, my parents had a theater school in Atlanta called the Actors and Writers Workshop. And one day, Coretta Scott King called my mother and asked if her, her kids could be part of the school because they were having a hard time finding um, a place that would accept her kids and my mom was like sure come on over and so sure. they just all became friends and they helped us out of a jam yeah because in the 60s you didn't have little black children interacting with little white kids no. in acting school right and your parents were like come on in yeah i think that's extraordinary yeah and it sort of lays the groundwork for who you are oh absolutely absolutely she said that got cut off there julia roberts that Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King paid for her birth hospital bill. That's just astounding because uh, Julie Roberts' parents welcomed their small children into their theater group. See, you learn something new every day. All right. In a moment, we're going to go to the uh, to the audio tape and and go back ten years to hear how we were then freaking out that the Republicans were going to tank the good faith and credit of the U.S. government by refusing to raise the debt ceiling with Warren Mosler in just a moment. First, I want to tell you about my smoothie. Today, I am drinking a raspberry dragon fruit smoothie from Blendjet. Blend, this is the Blendjet 2 uh, blender. It's a portable thing. You And I pre-blended it, but I, I put some more ice in it because I like it really icy. So... It goes like this. If I, 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 I locked it. Now I got to unlock it. There we go. So it's, it's kind of quiet for a blender and it's crushing ice. Um, this thing is so cool because you take it with you wherever you go. And when you're ready to blend up your smoothie, um, you just do it. It unscrews, uh, the top unscrews and you drink it. And it's that simple. The website, by the way, is blendjet.com. If you buy one of these little blenders, they're, they're, they're really awesome. 
Wow, that's good. Um, you put in the code sent by Nicole 12 and you get 12% off and I get credit for it. Um, but it's it's really an amazing thing. It's portable. You can blend up a smoothie at work. You can have a protein shake at the gym or a margarita at the beach. It's small enough to fit in your cup holder in your car because it's designed beautifully. But it's power, powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit. Uh, it's really quiet. Um, uh, you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house, which is important here because David sleeps late. Each charge, and it's not a battery. You just charge it with a USB charger. So each charge lasts for about 15 blends and it charges very fast. And it cleans itself. When you're done, you just put the water and a little drop of soap in it. And you hit the blender and it cleans the whole thing. Um, and and, and the, the different designs are very cool too. So go to blend jet.com um and with if you uh, purchase one use my code sent by nicole 12 you also get free two-day shipping so what more could you ask for um no other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality power and innovation of the blend jet 2 they guarantee you'll love it or your money back mm. and they have all these these mixed um, these these mixes for smoothies. This one is the raspberry dragon fruit, really good. But you can make your own recipes, and they even have a whole like cookbook online. So do check it out, blendjet.com. Truth uh, uh, code is sent by Nicole twelve. Yes, advertising, but the truth, because I hate asking you guys for money. So um, it, it's another way to support the show. Okay, you're ready to go to the tape? Here's how, uh, you know, this show, th these days I'm at NicoleSandler.com, right? Back then, um, it, the, whole, the show was under the umbrella of Radio or Not, and it still is. If you go to RadioOrNot.com, you'll get to NicoleSandler.com. But let's uh, get in the Wayback Machine now, shall we? Hi, friends. This is Tom Hartman. This is Stephanie Miller. Hey, this is Hal Sparks. I'm Brad Friedman. I approve of Nicole Sandler's RadioOrNot.com. RadioOrNot. RadioOrNot. RadioOrNot.com. 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 All right, we are back. Nicole Sandler here with you. Again, as I mentioned at the top, but let me restate. Back almost a year ago, I was reading about modern monetary theory, or MMT. I know you're going, what? Because yeah, that is so outside of my wheelhouse. Um, but the Washington Post ran a big story about it, and it was being widely shared on the interwebs and discussed on, on a couple, in a couple of um, email lists that I'm on. And so I read it, and I found it pretty fascinating. Now, right around the same time, listener Stefanitza suggested that I interview someone named Warren Mosler. Now, Mosler is featured prominently in this Washington Post article. He's an economist. He's a uh, hedge fund guy. I mean, he's a real money guy. He's also, let's see, the president and founder of Mosler Automotive. He briefly ran for president of the United States and U.S. Senate from Connecticut. The more I write about him, the more intrigued I became. And so 
he came on the show. It was almost a year ago. It was February 29th of last year. And our conversation really was fascinating. And it stayed with me. Right. And as I try to explain some of his theories, obviously coming from my uh, non economist mind. I wasn't very good at it. But as the discussion, you know, in this country on the not a cliff, fiscal cliff, and now uh, the breakdown, you know, the crazy Republican idea to break the full faith and credit of the United States by defaulting on our loans, you know, by not raising the debt ceiling, and the idea surfaced of this trillion dollar coin. And I thought to myself, this sounds like something Warren Mosler would be a proponent of. And sure enough, I started, went back to his website, MoslerEconomics.com, and started scrolling through his articles. And sure enough, what I found out is uh, he links to a piece at Wired. And Wired tells the story, uh, they write, the path of the trillion dollar coin, as the Georgia lawyer known online as Beowulf described it to Wired, began with a, quote, silly question in a pointless online bull session in the comments section of financier Warren Mosler's blog. Yeah, no. Uh, boy, sometimes just things come full circle. So I reached out to Warren Mosler again the other day, and I thought I'd love to get his take on all that's transpired since uh, we last spoke last year. And he said, sure, give me a call Wednesday morning. So with that, anonymous supporters help spread the concept to the comments of other economics blogs and ultimately into posts on such sites. The idea soon attracted attention from more prominent liberal economists like James Galbraith and Paul Krugman, and then from writers like Matthew Iglesias and Ezra Klein. From there, it was a short hop into the center mainstream. NBC's Chuck Todd hammered a White House spokesman about the coin possibility on Wednesday. All right. This, I guess, last week. All right. I'll tell you what. Um, uh, let's let's uh, try one more time to get Warren Mosler. If that doesn't work, we'll we'll take another quick break, and I will uh, email him and uh, see if we can't get him that way. Long Hello. Long. Hey, Warren. It's Nicole Sandler calling. Hi. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks. Good. Uh, we are we are live on the air. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come back and talk with us again. I just did sort of a lengthy yeah. intro about our last conversation almost a year ago when I had read that piece in the Washington Post about modern monetary theory. Of course, you were featured yes. in it. One of my listeners suggested I interview you. It all sort of came together. And me being, you know, when it comes to to money, the one thing I'm good at is spending it. Uh, and and that's about it. But but you made right. the topic of economics and modern monetary theory really interesting and accessible to even me. So uh, I'm thrilled yeah, that yeah. you said you'd come back again. And and, sure. and I further said is going through uh, MoslerEconomics.com. After all the discussion mm-hmm. of the idea of the trillion dollar coin, we find out that, yeah. of course, it originated in the comments section of your blog. So, uh, right, but, right. But when I first heard this story, I thought, this sounds like something Warren Mosler would support. <laughs> so, here we are. Yeah. I guess, but to, to start, for people who don't know what MMT or modern monetary theory is, can you explain yeah. it? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, well, I'll go through the words. It's- okay. Modern is in the kind of um, tongue-in-cheek sense. I, John Maynard Keynes said uh, when he talked about modern money, he said, yes, it's only been around for 10 years. So it's uh, what we, the currency we have today is very similar to what's been around for a long time. Uh, it's monetary in theory. Well, look, a plus, the theory of addition says, you know, A plus B equals B plus A. In other words, 1 plus 3 equals 3 plus 1. It sounds like a fact, right? Right. But, but, they, call it, but they call it a theory. So anyway, it's modern monetary theory, and 
the te- technically the understanding it brings to the table is that the currency itself is a monopoly, a public monopoly, which we all know. We all know if you have a dollar in your pocket, it came from the government or else it's counterfeit. And, and that is what these other monetary um, uh, theories or whatever have left out, believe it or not. The idea that the, the dollars only come from the U.S. government or else right. the counterfeit. Right. And that simple thing is open the doors to everything. Right. Okay. So uh, basically, yeah. the yeah. government um, has the ability and the only authority to create yeah. currency, right? And because right. it does, say, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Just, just imagine George Washington. Just to make up a story on day one, there's no currency at all, right? You just, you just start a new country, and he said, nobody knows what a dollar is or anything. Well, nobody, he, nobody has any dollars until George tells everybody there's a new currency. We're going to call it a dollar. You could have called it a euro or a shekel or anything you wanted, right? But there just isn't any until the government starts the currency. Now, you can have gold and you can have, you know, soybeans and you can have houses and you can have all these things in the world, but you don't have dollars until the U.S. government makes it up, right? Right, it. right. Yeah, you know, and so uh, and then he says, okay, look, everybody out there owes me a property tax of uh, $100 for every house. Well, where's anybody supposed to get any of these dollars? <laughs> Nobody has any when he first makes it up, right? Right. And so, so by putting a tax on the economy, now everybody needs these dollars or else they're going to lose their house. And so now George can go out and hire soldiers and everything else and spend these dollars because people are going, yeah, you know, I'll go work for dollars. I don't want to lose my house. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, the currency is established. The, the, the government has a monopoly, and, but, but it's worthless. The currency has no value. Nobody cares about it until they put a tax on. Then it has a lot of value. If you notice, anything the government says that they will accept for payment of taxes becomes valuable. So this could be tax credits are valuable. If the government said your business cards could be used to pay $10 of taxes, right, each, Right. I'll bet you could could sell those for at least $9 to all your friends and neighbors. (laughs) I bet you could, right. (laughs) So once the government says something can be used for payment of taxes, that's what it's worth. Hmm. <clears throat> and, that, and, that, and that's how it works. And it's always worked like that. It's been that simple. Okay. Now, it, it, it used to yeah. be used to be that uh, we were on the gold standard. So there was also, yes. there, was, there was something in the U.S. reserves that, yeah. that, that backed up that this currency is actually worth something because it's based on the gold that we have here at Fort Knox or wherever, Right. Right, then, right. Then we went the government off added that because it thought it had to. Right. <clears throat> and all it, did, all it did was create six depressions and booms and busts, and it's just a disaster. And that's why they went off it in 1934. Okay. It wasn't because it was working so well. Uh-huh. And, of course, and if it's so good for your economy to be on a gold standard, why does every country on a gold standard suspend it when they go to war? No. You know, you want a good economy when you go to war, right? <laughs> a bad economy. Right. So obviously it doesn't work. Okay. But it it had some kind of public appeal or popular appeal or who knows, but uh, it still does. But it doesn't work. It just plain doesn't work. Right. Otherwise, so, people would be using it. Okay. So now we <laughs> here we are today, um, and and all of a sudden we're being told that we're broke, that the nation is broke. Yes. Well, first of all, we know that's yes. not true because the United States is the wealthiest nation on the planet. We've got the biggest economy. We've got more money than any other. However, we're being told we're broke now. First of all, we know that's not true, right? Well, let's look carefully at how the federal government spends. Okay. Now, we have, 
Congress has two agents that work for it to do things. One is the Treasury and one is the Federal Reserve. We're both agents of Congress. And when Congress spends, you know, let's say you get your, I get my Social Security check, the Federal Reserve just changes the number in my bank account. So if I had 4000 in my bank account and I'm getting $1,000 for Social Security, suddenly I look at my bank account and, you know, blip, it says 5000 instead of 4000 All the Federal Reserve did is change the 4 into a 5. Okay, then go get some gold coin and hammer it into the computer or get a pile of dollar bills and somehow shove them in there. They just change the number. So where else do we see this happen? So you're watching a football game and your team kicks a field goal and their score goes from 10 to 13. Mm -hmm. So where does the football stadium get those three points? (laughs) You don't get them from anywhere, right? Right. They just change the number. Okay, it's scorekeeping. If you and I are in a card game or if we're in a card game with 10 people and one one person's the scorekeeper. How many points does he have? Well, he doesn't have any. Well, then how does he give everybody points when they get a good hand? <laughs> where do they come from? They don't come from anywhere. He writes them down. Right. So Chairman Bernanke was asked where the hundreds of billions of dollars that he gave the banks came from. Is that taxpayer money, borrowed from China? He goes, no. We just use the computer to mark up the numbers in their accounts. And he's exactly right. But that's where every penny comes from. Right. So how can you run out of that? Can a football stadium run out of points for the field goal? No, it's just silly. Can it, so when the government spends, it's just changing the number up in my account. Now, uh, I was running a business in the 1970s, and uh, we had some money coming in from the federal government. It was supposed to be $30,000. And instead, they gave us $300 million. Okay. And what had happened on those old calculators, they had buttons for zero, double zero, and triple zero. Right. And the, the operator at the Federal Reserve had pushed the, the triple zero instead of the double or the single. And instead of giving us $30,000, he gave us $300 million. Nice. Okay. Now, a couple hours later, he called up and said, send it back. Right. <laughs> but it was real money. Right. Okay. We could have gone and spent it. Those checks would not have bounced if we'd used it. And uh, so, well, well, where did it come from? It came from this guy's thumb. Right. It didn't come from China. Back then it wasn't China. It was Japan and it was Saudi Arabia. We really thought we had to borrow from them. But it's always been the keyboard operator at the Federal Reserve. That's where all the dollars come from. He just types them into existence. There's no other way to do it. Okay, so can you run out of money? Of course not. Dollars. Now, we could run out of yen or run out of whatever. The U.S. government can't run out of dollars. Japan can't run out of yen. The European Central Bank can't run out of euro. They spent a trillion euros last month. Don't be asked where it came from, China or taxpayers' money. Uh, now, you know, in Canada, Canada can't run out of Canadian dollars because we've just got a keyboard operator you know, entering into the system just like we have for dollars and the European Central Bank has for euros. Now, Greece and Connecticut and California and corporations, we can't do that. We don't have that uh, input machine, right? We don't have the keyboard to, <laughs> to change numbers. That, that belongs to the central bank. Right. So all currencies in the world come from only from their own central banks. There's no other place they can come from unless they're counterfeit. Right. So, so, so we, if that's so, the so case. So you can't run out of dollars. It's, right. It's, 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 yeah, it's nonsense. Okay. So then Inapplicable. why are we borrowing billions of dollars from, from China? Because we're not borrowing in the way you and I would use the word borrow. They're using the word borrow to describe something that you and I would never use that word for. Right, so what happens is the United States spends, we spend the dollars first 
and then borrow them after we spend them. <laughs> because if you think about it, how, you know, if, all the dollars come from the Federal Reserve. They can't come from anywhere else. Okay, so the Federal Reserve has to spend first before it can collect taxes. It has to spend first before it can borrow. It's like George Washington, if he said there's a new currency, it's a dollar, nobody has any, how can he borrow them? can't. He can't borrow them until after he spends them. Right. And, and, and anybody who issues anything can't collect it until after they issue it. So if you are New York City and you were issuing subway tokens, you can't collect the tokens until after you issue them and get them out there. Right. Sell them, right? Right. If you're at a football stadium, you collect your tickets after you distribute them, not before. Sure. You don't collect tickets in order to sell them. Okay? And so the U.S. government, its dollars are like its, you know, stadium tickets. It, it spends them first or lends them first, gets them out there somehow first, and then it has to collect them. And when it spends them, it puts them, it doesn't just throw them out the window, it puts them in checking accounts at the Federal Reserve. Now, it's the Federal Reserve Bank, so they give those checking accounts fancy names. They call them reserve accounts, Federal Reserve accounts, but they're checking accounts. So when the federal government spends, it goes into your bank's checking account. When I get my Social Security check, the $1,000, it actually goes into my bank's Federal Reserve account, and then my bank reflects that information into my account, right? And so when the federal government spends, it just changes the numbers in its member bank's reserve accounts. And then when they buy a treasury security, that's called borrowing, right? So so when the government spends, it just puts it in your reserve account. That's not the debt. That's just, I don't know what they call it, reserves, whatever. Okay, treasury securities are called the debt. So what is a treasury security? Treasury security is just another dollar deposit, just like a savings account at the Federal Reserve Bank. And any other bank would call it a savings account or a CD. The Federal Reserve Bank gives it a fancy name. They call it a treasury security. It's just a savings account at the Fed. So the sequence is like this. The government spends the money first. It goes into checking accounts at the Fed. Then what's called borrowing, they're just moving the money from the dollar deposit from checking to savings at the Fed. And now that's the debt. 16 trillion in treasury securities outstanding means there's 16 trillion in savings accounts at the Federal Reserve that we call debt. It's like, okay, you can call it whatever you want. It doesn't sound like it's any problem to me. Right. And how do we pay it back? We pay back $50 billion every month. And what do we do? We just shift the dollars from savings back to checking. It can't go anywhere else anyway. Right. Dollars that, dollars that the government spends are numbers on its own books. It can only go from one account to another. So then why? So then they go from... Right. Yeah, right. So they go from checking to savings, and we call that the debt. It's like, okay, you can call it a banana if you want. Right. <laughs> why, why should we care? Well, we don't. Look, don't you think it was going to be a problem? It'd be a problem before sixteen trillion, <laughs> maybe fifteen trillion, you know, or when we got downgraded, or you know, in Japan, debt is three times ours, and it's not a problem. Their huh. interest rates for ten years are point eight percent. Really? So why is it? Yeah, why is it not a problem? Well, what are what is their yen debt? It's just yen in savings accounts at the Bank of Japan. Just like our debt is dollars in savings accounts at the Federal Reserve. So it's like it's nothing. So, they, don't, they don't even need to publish the number. Right. So here we are. We're being told, you know, yeah. the sky is falling. Yeah. The sky is falling. We're going to drive off a yeah, cliff. Right. We're, you know, and, right. The earth is flat. Right. The earth is flat. We're going to go off the edge. When, when all right. they really need to do is just print more currency? Well, or not even just transfer? Know, con- Congress... Congress approves a certain amount of spending, and there's no restriction on that. Right. The restriction is what's politically acceptable. Now, if they spend too much 
and hired everybody to work for the government, there'd be nobody left to build the cars or grow the food, and we'd all starve to death, and we'd have to walk, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't want to put any more people in government than you absolutely have to because you're taking them away from other things. But that's a political decision. You know, how many people do we need in the Army? Well, we need enough to defend ourselves. If you don't have enough, we're going to lose the war, and we have nothing. We have too many. You know, it's a waste. We've taken too many people out of the private sector. So you have to kind of get it right. It's a political decision. How large should the legal system be? You know, how many judges do we need? How many clerks? Well, if you got to wait five years for, a, you know, for a court date, maybe we need more people in the legal system to move right. this along. Right. If they're calling you up asking you to go sue somebody because they have extra time, maybe we've got too many people. Over right. There, it's know? supply and demand, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. It's common sense. You right. look at our public services. Are they enough or too little? The cost is that we have to take people out of the private sector, but we're not going to run out of money. That's not going to happen. Now, if you spend too much, you can start driving up prices and cause inflation. You know, once you've hired everybody and we're at full employment, if you try to hire somebody else, you can't get people out of thin air, so you're just going to, you know, drive up price wages. And if you try and buy whatever, all the lumber to build or all the concrete, and there isn't any left, and you try and spend some more, you're just going to, you're not going to get any more. You're just going to drive up prices. You can't get something for nothing. There's no free lunch. Mm -hmm. But, um, but you can buy what's offered for sale. And uh, I don't know the last time anybody saw the price of a house go up. It's been a while. It has been a while. Clearly, so, yeah, yeah, so clearly, clearly there's excess capacity everywhere. Right. Well, Warren Mosler is with us. You can read a lot of his writings at, at MoslerEconomics.com. Uh, but suffice it to say, you've been a, you've been a very successful businessman, a financial advisor, yeah. a hedge fund manager. Yeah. I mean, you founded Mosler Automotives, and you've created this yeah. great car. And I mean, and you were a a, a a presidential candidate and a senatorial candidate. I mean, you're, you, you're a smart man. <laughs> Why is the government not listening to you? Why? I mean, we have people like Paul Krugman, who's a, a, a Nobel Prize winning economist, Dean Baker yeah. and others saying, uh, you know, a lot of the same things you're saying. We are not broke. Why? Why? And then. OK, so then um, right now we have the Republican Party threatening to blow up our economy, I suppose, by refusing yeah. to raise the debt ceiling, refusing to say, all right, Congress, we Congress approved all this spending, but, you know, now the bills are coming in and we're not going to pay them. Now, first of all, yeah, does that why, make any sense? no. <laughs> now, why do we even have a debt ceiling? Explain I, I, the debt ceiling is basically now, what the, the debt ceiling is left over from before 1934 when we're on the gold standard, uh -huh. you know, and it, if it had any application, it had some back then, at least it made some sense because they were trying to protect the gold supply from politicians raiding. You know, because when they spent dollars back then, people could cash them in and take the gold. Right. And so it was, it was a device that presumably helped to do that. But no other country has that in place. I think we're the only ones. It, it doesn't make any difference for policy, except it gets in the way of, like you just said, it's just disruptive. It doesn't have any function anymore. So, uh, but yeah, but I think it's just an anachronism from the gold standard, best I can tell. Right. And so, you know, uh, the 14th Amendment basically says that, you know, that, that this is... Um, you can't do this. That that uh, correct, uh, correct. right? You cannot. So, so here's a question yes. for the president. Yes. He clearly has, you know, he could clearly go ahead and spend the money anyway, even though we hit the debt ceiling. He could do it either through platinum coin or Fourteenth Amendment. He's got a lot of avenues, but the will of Congress is to not spend the money because not passing the debt ceiling expresses the will of Congress. The debt ceiling was created by Congress, and so. 
you know, what's the executive's responsibility? Is it to execute the will of Congress? Like when Congress makes a law, he has to execute the laws. Uh, but he also has a, an oath that he's sworn to uphold the Constitution. And so it's not clear whether um, Congress is violating the Constitution here or not. But they might be. But it's still the will of Congress. And I guess the executive branch has decided that the will of, that their job is to execute the will of Congress. And right now the will of Congress is, is to do whatever they're doing. Now, the whole, the, so that's what we're stuck with now. But look, don't forget, the president voted against extending the debt yeah. ceiling as a senator in 2006. Yeah, yeah he did. <laughs> I know, which is stupid. I mean, and then now he's saying he regrets it and it was a posture. But but uh, would he yeah, have done, you know, right? it is. And would he have done it well, if, well, if the entire Democratic Party was going to hold it up? Um, it, yeah. Who knows? Well, uh, let me ask you this. Yes. You know, to, to get the health care passed, this president is, you know, commonly held up as a socialist and everything else, right. communist, whatever, by right. all his adversaries, uh, took $700 billion out of Medicare to give it to the insurance companies. Yeah, well. I, I don't think there are too many progressives happy with that thing. No, Certainly no, not we're, not. we're not. We're not, nor am I. I hear t- talk is cheap. Everything I see that actually happens is right of center, far right yeah, of center. Yeah, you're right. Look what they did at year end. They let the FICA taxes holiday, the payroll tax holiday expire. That was the most regressive punishing tax they could have put on the economy. Almost $200 billion taken out of people who can afford it the least, people who are working for a living. They even make the newspapers, right? Mm-hmm. They all, they both sides agreed on it back in December. Yeah. Instead, what made the headlines is arguing over a few billion dollars for the top 2%, 1%. They don't pay that tax anyway. Right. Okay? And right. so they had that smoke screen to completely obfuscate what they actually did, which was to pass the most, allow the most regressive tax increase ever, the largest tax increase in the history of the country. I'm the lowest income people who can afford it the least. It's like, what's going on here? I, and and unfortunately, I, I think all those people are too busy working two and three jobs to, to be educated as to what the fuck is going on. Well, so, the, the average family is going to see you know their, their paycheck go down $200 a month yeah. in this market under these circumstances. That's how we leverage money. That's house payments and car payments and trying to, you know, health insurance. It's bad. Yes. Now, you know, now and... and now, one of the things that, that, that stuck out to me from our last conversation, again, we're speaking with Warren Mosler, is um, the idea that during times of economic crisis, such as we've been in for the last four or five years, yeah. um, it, that's when, number one, you cut taxes, especially on the people, the, the, the lowest uh, earners in, in the nation, and you spend. The government spends money. You put people to work. And if there's someone who's unemployed who wants a job, the government gives them a job. Because, again, deficit spending, it, yeah. it, we can do that. Right? Yeah. So, yes. So, um, so what, 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 what happens is, let's see if the easiest way to put this. When we have, our GDP is everything that's bought and everything that's sold. You know, right. everything you buy, somebody has to sell it to you. Right. So it was $16 trillion or something like that last year, which means people shopping, government spending, all, all total spending was $16 trillion, and total sales were $16 trillion. So what happens is for that to happen, whoever sold all that stuff for $16 trillion, all the companies, all the barbershops, everybody who sold their services and goods for $16 trillion, they had to spend, they had to have spent $16 trillion or else they wouldn't have been able to sell $16 trillion. So what I'm saying is all the income has to be spent for the output to get sold. Kind of a circular thing. It's what okay. they call an identity. All right. And so at the end of the year, when you look back, you can see, okay, people sold $16 trillion worth of stuff, and then 
some, and then they bought 16 trillion worth of stuff. So what happens is, if people don't spend all of their income, the total income between wages and profits and dividends and everything else for 16 trillion, if all the income didn't get spent, if 16 trillion didn't get spent, 16 trillion never would have got sold. Okay, so it's important. So one of the things that happens is all the income has to get spent or the output doesn't get sold. So if this year people decide to save a trillion and they're only going to spend 15 trillion instead of 16 trillion, then you're only going to get 15 trillion of output sold. Okay, so in, in, in the economy is going to be in a recession. Uh, if people spend 17 trillion, then you'll get 17 trillion of output sold. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is when anybody doesn't spend their income and saves it, somebody else had better spend more than their income to right. make up for that guy because not it, spending his. It's money taken out it's, of the economy. Yeah, so if yes. you get paid $100 and you only spend 50 you put 50 in your pocket, you, you know, you just got paid for producing goods and services. Because only, only $50 worth of them are going to get sold. Somebody else better spend $50 or else your output's not going to get sold. And, and so if you look at it in the total, for every person that doesn't spend his income, somebody has to spend more than his income. And so what happens is every year we put, you know, a lot of money, a lot of dollars into pension funds, IRAs, KIOs, and corporate reserves. You know, Apple's got a hundred billion in cash. There's two trillion in corporate cash. That's all fine. But that just means some other entity had better spend more than its income. But all that output, goods and services aren't going to get sold. So how does that happen? How do people spend more than their income? Well, you buy a house. You might spend $250,000 on a house and you take a... $200,000 mortgage, you just spent five times your income, right, on one purchase, five times your one year's income. You right. might buy a car and spend right. more than your income with car payments. So we have the private sector going into debt all the time to buy things, which is fine. They spend more than their income. But that's not enough because the savings is much, much larger than that. And so that just leaves the government. And the government, that therefore, has to spend more than its income or else the output doesn't get sold. And so if the government's uh, income is $2.5 trillion, it has to spend 3 and a half or 4 just for the output to get sold because we're earning all that money. We're not spending it. We're putting it in our IRAs and our kios and all that other stuff. Anyway, I don't want to get too, too right, technical. No, but, but what you're saying the government, yes. But the government has a choice. It can either cut taxes or increase spending to make sure the output gets sold. If it cuts taxes, it has to cut them enough so that the people will buy their own output. If it increases spending, it has to make sure it spends enough to get the output sold. And the output means everybody looking for a job. That's part of our output. I see. So um, you, you can do it, and that's a political decision. Now, the Republicans might want 100% tax cuts. The government might want, the Democrats might want 100% spending increases, but that's okay. Then they compromise. Some tax cuts, some spending increase, and everybody's working, and we got a, a good economy. Unfortunately, all these people got it backwards. And so they're out. The Democrats want taxes to go up, and the Republicans want spending to go down, completely backwards. And they compromise on something that's equally bad, right? And we're just stuck in this in the mud here. And it's horrible. It's just a nightmare for uh, what a, you know, twenty five percent of the population now and more. Everybody's right. hurting. Everybody's hurting, Nobody right? And, and now, including the one percent, they they hurt too. If they got the economy right, the stock market would double, and they'd. They'd be in that city, you know. Although the stock market's doing pretty damn well, it's doing a lot better under Obama than it did under Bush. 
right? Yeah. 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 But I'll tell you what, it's only doing half as well as it, as it should be. Wow. <laughs> if wow. Obama would uh, go the right way here and cut taxes and increase spending instead of, you know, some combination, any combination, I don't care. You know, we'd have the stocks double or triple because the economy has been growing. Productivity is way up. Our technology is incredible. And we're just holding ourselves back from right. prosperity beyond anybody's imagination. Right. And and one thing, I, Robert Hill in New York City, I've got a chat room going while we're talking, and, and he says, Mr. Businessman, you can spend your money on reinvestment or you can spend it in taxes. It's your choice, but you've got to spend it. And what we've been seeing, at least for the last few mm, years, is back, sort of... Back, uh, no, upside down again. R- upside down. Look, capitalism works because business competes for consumer right. dollars. Okay. Okay. Right, and right. so... Right. So, and and, it, and this all this thing about creative destruction and all that, you don't uh-huh. support bad business. Yeah. What happens is if you produce the best ketchup in the world, you make billions of dollars, and that's fine. And if you nobody likes your ketchup, you go out of business. No government bailouts, nothing. If you're a bank and you're doing a good job and servicing your customers with good prices, you make a lot of money. If you're not, people go to the other bank and you go out of business. That's fine. You don't have to have like massive recessions to like throw all the companies out of business. Right. And yet <laughs> here we are. Nuts. We've got, we've got. Yeah, so what, is, what happened with this tax increase? Business, business took away the consumer dollars that they tried, they're supposed to be competing for. They just took away $200 billion of spending on their products by consumers. Hmm. You know, so it's not about business spending. It's about if you want the consumer spending. The only right. point of economics is to consume, right? Why, right. why don't you build anything if you weren't going to use it? Right, but but no, but from what I understand, I mean, look, you you talked about the yeah. you know the money comes in, then you got to spend it. Now the, on the lower end, the people who are affected, for instance, by the ta- payroll yeah. tax holiday being yeah. going right, they're the ones, yeah. uh, you know, they get the money and they spend it. They spend each paycheck. The people at the higher end, right. well, and they're supposed to. They don't spend the money control, though. The whole point is the whole point of the economy is that people, you know, can go out and buy the goods and services they need and they want. That's what's supposed to happen. Right. Okay, you take their money away, they can't buy the stuff, and business can't make any profits. And, and look, you only invest because of sales. The whole point of a business is right. to sell your product. Right, right. Business is a function of sales. And so, uh, you know, when sales go up, jobs go up. Yes. Nobody, um, nobody if a restaurant's full, nobody, you know, you don't lay off the bus boy. Okay, I don't care mm-hmm. if you're a tea party and you hate the government and you've got right. bad regulations. Right. If your exactly. restaurant's full, you, you, you don't lay anybody off. If it's empty... You don't hire anybody. Sure. And you, don't, and you don't invest. I don't care if you have zero taxes. <laughs> like, what would the point be if you have no customers? Right. right. American capitalism is driven by customers and sales. And, and I've just seen more and more articles on this now. It's finally coming around. Uh, there, you know, that why is hiring going up? Well, we've seen our sales increase. It's all about demand. Right. You sell more cars, you hire more people. Right. So the whole idea is to get sales back to where they should be, so where we're all fully employed, working, producing real goods and services. You know, building cars and driving them, growing food and eating it, building houses and living in it. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, so so now, you know, we, we've only got a few yeah. minutes left. So now what's going to happen uh, within a month if the Republican Party says, you know what, we're, we're going to take a stand here. We're not raising the debt ceiling. We're spending too much. Okay. It's, it's a false argument, but they can do it. What happens then? This is far more catastrophic than the fiscal cliff. Right. Because it introduces what's called a pro-cyclical force here. And what that means is with the fiscal cliff, if they just force spending cuts and tax increases, the economy goes bad. Okay, unemployment goes up a few points. But then unemployment compensation goes up, people collect more, and uh, 
people don't pay taxes because they got laid off. And so the deficit goes up automatically. It's ugly, but it does go up, just like it's done in Europe when they slow themselves down. Just like the deficit went up here when the economy crashed because nobody can pay taxes and the government's paying, you know, huge transfer payments. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that, was, that high deficit stabilizes the economy. And that's why Europe is stabilized here, okay? And that right. stabilized us in 2009. It was a high deficit that stabilized us wow. and turned it around. Wow. When you hit the debt ceiling, the deficit goes to zero, cold turkey, okay? It can't go up. So when people get laid off, they can't collect unemployment because the government can't spend anymore. And when people can't pay taxes because they got laid off, the government has to cut back even further. So a slowdown causes a faster slowdown, which causes a faster slowdown. You get this intense, you know, death dive down where you can lose you know, 25% of GDP in three months. Wow. I don't think they'd let it go that long, but they have no idea how toxic a thing they're fooling with. In fact, we've got a good percentage of Congress thinks going cold turkey to a deficit to a balanced budget is a good thing. And that, yeah, there'll be a couple of bad months, but then it'll stabilize, and with the government out of the way, it's going to be great. They have no idea what they're talking about. They're completely wrong. And uh, it's just like, (laughs) it's the live wire. This hopefully doesn't happen. Last summer when, oh, it was the summer before 2011 when, Stocks went down 20, 25% as we got very close. That was no mistake. That it, that was just the beginning of what would happen if they hadn't passed that debt ceiling. Wow. Just the beginning. Okay, so that was discounting about half of what would have happened. We would have been down another 25% very quickly because you just uh, you know pulled the rug out from everything. Now, I'm not saying we need to increase government spending. I'm saying we need to increase the deficit. So you, we can cut government spending fine, but then you have to cut taxes more than that. Right now, for the size government we have, we're probably about $1 trillion a year overtaxed. Hmm. So we either have to cut taxes a trillion or uh, increase spending a trillion. One of, you know, some combination right now, per oh. year. All right, I say increase in, spending. Because we got a lot of people who are out yeah. of work and, and in a time of economic yeah. disaster. You spend, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. And that's fine. Somebody else, you know, I, you know, somebody else might, well, we could completely suspend the FICA taxes. Right. And then, but then, and then don't, don't be risk. for a living gets a $300 a month raise and they go out and spend and suddenly everybody has jobs and but, we're doing pretty well. But because FICA goes to fund... we need services. We be, need infrastructure. But, we need $2 trillion of infrastructure. Yeah, go ahead. But because FICA funds Social Security, don't we put Social Security at risk well, of, you know, what the Republicans want to do is well, kill Social Security? It. Where does this... Where, yeah, but where do, this, where do the Social Security dollars come from? They come from the Federal Reserve just changing the number in the bank account. Right. They but but we also taxes. have, you know, the Republican Party saying, oh, look, now it's just another social program. It's costing us too much. We need to cut it. It's always been. It's always right. been. Okay. Taking care of old people is always a social program. As what it else should is it? be. If I mean, this is a compassionate. If you're 75 years old, you're, you're at the mercy of everybody else. You don't have any actual power. Right. You know, if they dig a hole and kick you in it, what are you going to do? Call right. a manager? Right. And, and this, right. <laughs> so it's always been a social. In 1937, they called it a useful fiction to have this investment account. They knew it was nothing but a social program then. They just thought it would be a useful fiction so that people would feel invested when really they're not. There is no such thing. And uh, it's not so useful anymore. <laughs> it's not a useful fiction anymore. Now it's a disastrous fiction. Oh, we need yeah. to just understand that as human beings, we take care of our, our elderly. And that's what makes us proud to be Americans. And we right. should give them enough money so that they don't have to eat out of garbage cans, but not so much that they're flying around in private jets, right? Right. Works so, for me. Uh, and then, then that might be $2,000 a month. Well, fine. What, are they going to eat more food or something? Or, I know. You know they're not, we produce 8,000 calories a day per person. Why should we give our seniors not enough money to be able to eat? What I sense know. does that make? It's, it's disgusting. It's just a disgrace. 
Ah, yeah. yeah. Warren Mosler, um, we could we could go yeah. on and on, except the clock is telling me we, yeah. we got to run. Thank okay. you so much. Thanks. I learned so much from you when we talk, and I really, really okay. appreciate Anytime. your time. Take care. Bye-bye. MoslerEconomics.com is where you'll find uh, Warren Mosler's blog. You can find out more about him at WarrenMosler.com. I told you it would be fascinating, and I'll tell I mean, seriously, I still have so many questions. We could have gone on and on. I would have asked him, back to the trillion-dollar coin thing, which I didn't delve into any further because the White House said, well, we're not going to do it. But there was a little side discussion going on in the chat room, and the, the bottom line is, because it is a loophole that allows the government to do it. Now, the president doesn't have the authority to just go out and print more money. They can move money from, as he was explaining, uh, the checking account to the savings account, if you will. But they can't just go out and print more dollars. There is a loophole, though, the law that allows the government to mint basically commemorative coins. They were collector's editions. They could do it and assign a value to it. Thus, your trillion-dollar platinum coin... That would have, I guess, fixed it. But the White House said, no, they're not going to do that. And they're also not going to invoke the 14th Amendment. Uh, So here we are uh, to be continued, to be continued. That was 10 years ago today. And it just blows my mind that we've learned nothing. We're doing the same thing, same shit, different decade. The Republicans are still threatening to tank the global economy by not raising the debt ceiling. It's unconscionable. And you heard it. That was Warren Mosler. Um, Have him on again. That was the last time I spoke to him was 10 years ago. Because Stephanie Kelton has been coming on. But you're right. I should reach out to to, uh, Warren Mosler again. He is great. Um, And... uh, um, uh, he's living in the Virgin Islands. He was back then. He still is now. Uh, we don't hear from him as much, but he's still out there doing his thing. Anyway, uh, we are, <laughs> we're just not in a good place. Um, and with that, we come to the end of the show. Now, tomorrow, tomorrow at one o'clock, I'm taping an interview with Jared Yates Sexton. Um, he's got a new book out. It's kind of terrifying. I'm going to try to turn that around. I should, because I don't, I don't edit the interviews unless we have a technical foul up. Um, I'll turn it around and we'll, we'll run that interview tomorrow because um, I think it's going to be a good one. All right. Uh, thank you for listening. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I hope you did something good for uh, people who need help. It's, it's supposed to be a day of service, right? We, we seem to have lost track of that since, uh, well, the former guy was in the White House. All right. So I'll see you tomorrow. I will leave you with the news. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a good night. Bye. Gonna, here it's we time go. For Nicole Sandler. What's news from NicoleSandler.com and the Progressive Voices Network. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Yes, today is a national holiday celebrating the birthday of the civil rights leader and 1964 Nobel Peace Prize winner. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. is widely recognized as the leading voice of the civil rights movement. He preached a message of nonviolent resistance. On Sunday, President Joe Biden delivered remarks from Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, the first sitting president to deliver a Sunday sermon from that historic church where King served as pastor until his assassination in 1968. 
In honor of the holiday, many government agencies, post offices, banks, and corporate offices are closed. U.S. national parks are waiving entrance fees today, and many are expected to go to his memorial sites in Atlanta and D.C. Sadly, Californians will mostly spend the day trying to stay dry again as the state prepares for yet another drenching with up to three inches expected today in places that are already beyond saturated. Around 24 trillion gallons of water have dropped on California from storms that began late last month. The damage from flash floods and mudslides is evident across the state. The storms are also blamed for at least 19 deaths. Flood watches are in place this morning for around 8 million people in coastal California, including the Bay Area. And there's still a risk, at least through the morning, for most of Southern California as well. The National Weather Service is saying that a much-needed stretch of dry weather is expected to begin on Thursday. So you already knew we have a teacher shortage, and now nurses are striking and quitting across the country. Over 7,000 nurses were on strike in New York City last week. There have also been protests, strikes, or threatened strikes in California, Oregon, Michigan, and Minnesota. Why? Well, hospitals have long been understaffed, but a new layer of stress was added by the coronavirus pandemic and a recent surge of other respiratory illnesses. Predictions are that the U.S. could be short of between 200,000 and 450,000 nurses by 2025. Russia continues its deadly assault on Ukraine. A missile strike on an apartment building in Dnipro, Ukraine, killed at least 40 people after explosions were heard across the country. Search crews on Sunday were still trying to reach survivors in the debris of a huge apartment building that was destroyed by a Russian missile strike in the southeastern Ukrainian city of Dnipro. Some people were believed to still be trapped under the rubble, but the mayor told Reuters that the chances of saving people now are minimal. The death toll from the attack is now 40. That makes it the deadliest attack in a single location since a September attack on the Zaporizhia region. Reports are that about 1,700 people lived in the apartment building. Well, the White House is facing increasing criticism for its lack of transparency related to the recent discovery of classified documents found at President Biden's home in Delaware, as well as a private office from his time as vice president. The initial batch of documents was found at that office on November 2nd, just days before the midterm elections, but they weren't revealed to the public until last week. Many hypocrites, uh, Republicans, are now comparing Biden's case to the Trump probe, including the new House Oversight Committee Chair James Comer, who told CNN that he's asking for more documents and communications related to the searches of Biden's homes and other locations linked to the president's aides. CNN called out his hypocrisy. What are you saying to viewers who don't understand why President Biden's documents seem like a big priority for you, but President Trump, who took hundreds more documents, did not comply with the subpoena, did not reach out to the National Archives or the Justice Department to say, hey, we found these documents. It's not a priority. Do you only care about classified documents being mishandled when Democrats do the mishandling? I'm not playing his response because it's more gaslighting and nonsense. In Israel, an estimated 80,000 people turned out to protest in Tel Aviv against newly reinstated Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's planned judicial overhaul. Critics say it'll weaken Israel's Supreme Court by limiting its authority to review and strike down laws. 
This controversy has intensified political division less than two weeks after Netanyahu returned to office with a very right-wing government. Several thousand people also gathered in front of Israeli President Isaac Herzog's residence in Jerusalem. Herzog has faced criticism for not publicly opposing the government's planned reforms, but said he was focusing on preventing a, quote, historic constitutional crisis. I fear this will not end well. And finally, Oxfam International, the anti-poverty organization, on Monday called for windfall taxes on food companies that have made huge profits as high inflation drives up prices for food and other basic necessities. In a report Oxfam released to coincide with the start of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, we learned that the richest people in the world have gotten even richer as several simultaneous crises, including Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, have caused widespread suffering. Oxfam saying that the world's richest 1% gained nearly twice as much wealth over the last two years as the remaining 99% combined. But we already knew that, didn't we? And that's just a bit of what's news for now. I'm Nicole Sandler. If you appreciate these reports and the Nicole Sandler Show, I hope you'll consider making a contribution. My work is listener-supported, and I can't do it without your help. Find out more at NicoleSandler.com, and please click on that Donate button.